I'm excited to get into the message today, and I was just really blessed this week. I had several people that talked to me, approached me, called, whatever, and just were saying how in the last few weeks, we've been talking about these, the messages, a lot of them out of the book of Revelation, and people had said how for years, they were always taught or just kind of led to believe, or that was just the way that they thought, that the book of Revelation was scary and something to be afraid of and, and fearful, provoked fear, you know, and just almost like this nervousness and, uh, and how these people had said that in these last few weeks and these teachings and this series that, that that's been changing and then that's been shifting for them and they've begun to see this through a different lens and through a different perspective. And that really pleases my heart because if we accomplish nothing else really in these weeks of these messages other than to encourage the heart of every believer and to strengthen the hope and the joy for what is yet to come beyond this life that produces a life lived on this earth that is of greater joy and of greater purpose because we know what the end and the outcome looks like for us, then we will have succeeded significantly, I believe, in what the heart behind all of this was meant to do. And I know that there are a lot of things, especially when you start talking about end times, and there's a lot of prophetic language in this that we interpret as best as we can so we understand that we just have to receive it that way but I know sometimes we can try to take all this in and I know because this is how I've studied and learned this stuff for years is that we can take some of it in and then feel like wow you know I still I still don't understand all of that well welcome to the club okay um, and here's what I would say about this is the same thing I would say about really any message, but it's certainly, I think we're very aware of it in these types of messages, is that the Word of God, there's a reason why the Bible uses figurative language uh, to describe the Word of God as seed. Okay, seed goes forth and falls on soil. The soil is the condition of our heart. And so the seed needs to be able to take root in the soil of the heart. Now, every seed, which is every word that goes forth out of the Bible, God's word, his living word, every seed has the capacity to produce life and fruit and growth in the life of every believer who it is scattered out for. Now, we also know that that won't necessarily be the case. That's why we can preach the word and speak the word and some people receive it and it takes root and some people can hear it and it doesn't. We know that the Bible speaks about how thorns and thistles can grow and choke out the word that tries to grow in our heart. Thorns and thistles are a product of another seed, an inferior seed, in fact, an evil seed that would be allowed to be sown in our hearts and in our minds and can choke out the truth of the word. So as seed is deposited in the soil of our heart, it grows. It's nurtured, it's watered, it grows in stature, in size, and in significance, ultimately bearing fruit 
producing fruit that enriches the atmosphere around it for those who partake of it. And here's why I say this. When you're hearing the Word of God, when it's being taught, and, and we're hearing lessons on things like out of Revelation, and, and you're taking this in, what's important is that you receive it in faith and you allow the seed to take root in your heart because then it can begin to grow. And the understanding that it brings forth will expand, will grow over time, and it will continue to produce more and more of a harvest of fruit in your life and the way it's affecting you and those around you. The Bible says in Proverbs 14, 33, wisdom, revelation, knowledge from the word of God rests in the heart of him who has understanding, meaning it takes up residency there. So once the seed takes root, and it gets roots, and it begins to grow to a point where it's not allowed to be choked out, and it starts to grow into maturity, you've got to realize that it, it grows and expands, and so the, what it produces in your life will grow and expand along with that. That's how many times we can read the same scriptures years later, and we've already received that truth. It's already produced some fruit in our life, but then it begins to expand, and we see it at greater levels of increasing proportions as time time goes on and that seed's just watered more and more and more. Does that make sense? So as you receive it, just like James said, we have to receive the implanted word. Let it get implanted in your heart and, and trust and know that the work that the seed will do is being done. God said that my word will not return to me void. So if the seed takes root in your heart and begins to grow, it will accomplish the good works for which God has brought it forth to accomplish in your life. Whether your mind is fully grasping all that is actually happening in your heart, your mind really just kind of catches up along the way down the road to what God's already been doing in your heart. And so we receive it in faith, not with knowledge of our minds. Does that make sense? So these teachings for me are much like that, that these are things I've been studying for years and years and years, and I go back to these scriptures, and I'm still blown away by the increasing ways that God illuminates these things more and more with every passing year for me in my life. And so I just want to encourage you with that so that when you say, I mean, I took in a lot of that, but not all of that, that is okay. That's why we are to continue to feast upon the word of God. It is nourishment for us every day. Man should not live by bread alone, but every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. We need nourishment every day, not only on certain days. Are you with me? All right. So uh, last couple of weeks, we've went, we've traveled some distance, haven't we? I mean, we've, by the time this is done, I was looking at this, by the time we're done with this series, we will have preached from the Genesis 1 to Revelation 22. We will actually, and, and many, many verses and scriptures and chapters in between, but we will have covered the spans of scripture from beginning to end in the sense, obviously not line by line breaking down the whole Bible, but in the sense that we started with creation in the beginning with the garden, Adam and Eve, and with the fall of Satan out of heaven, and we went through the age of the prophets up to the time of Christ, the resurrection, and the New Testament church being birthed, and then this last week we got to uh, the return of Christ, and, and that's where we're picking up from today. Now, a couple things that I just want you to take away from the teachings from last week. That the return of Christ, there are several phrases that are used in the Bible to describe this event that all mean the same thing. They all describe the same event. 
There is the return of Christ. There is the, the second coming of Christ. And there is what's called the day of the Lord. That's where it's very often referred to, especially in the Old Testament, is that the day of the Lord, which is when Jesus himself returns. And then we spoke about some of the different happenings or elements that are a part of that event when the time comes. We spoke about that last week. One of the things that we talked about was the battle of Armageddon, about how there is a final battle that is staged at the end that when Christ back comes back, he destroys all of the ungodly, rebellious nations of the world that unite around the Antichrist and his leadership and try to fight against God on the earth. And when Christ returns, it's the day of the Lord, and all of those ungodly nations that are united together against him through the leadership of the Antichrist, which is influenced by Satan, are destroyed. So that's Armageddon. Obviously, we talked about the Antichrist and his ascension to power, how he comes forth in the beginning as someone who's disguised with a message of peace. He seems to unite nations. He seems to bring world peace and world order. But then partway through his ascension to power, he breaks all of that peace and then begins to inflict havoc and harm upon the world, persecuting believers. And then he forces all those who are on the earth to choose to either receive the mark of the beast or to perish. And there are many who are martyred for their faith. This all happens during a period of time that takes place of about seven years, known as the Great Tribulation. That seven-year period precedes the return of Christ. So when Christ comes back at Armageddon and there is that destruction of all of those rebellious nations at the end, that is on the end part of the seven-year period that takes place of tribulation and the Antichrist's ascension to power. Now, I want to show you something today around that particular event when the day of the Lord happens that we didn't get to last week that I find incredibly fascinating and interesting and very relevant um, for us today. It's in the book of Revelation chapter 18. So if you have it, go with me there. And I'm gonna begin in verse one. It says, after these things, I saw another angel coming down from heaven. So again, John, the, the apostle John, is the author of Revelation. He wrote this book like decades after Christ died and uh, was resurrected. I think it was in like 95 AD that he wrote this on the island of Patmos in isolation. Uh, and he was, as far as we know, the last surviving of the apostles um, and definitely the latest book to be written in the Bible. And so uh, he's, when he says, I saw a vision, God is giving him visions of these events prophetically that will happen and he wants him to write these down and these become part of the inspired word of God for all of us for all the years thereafter. Uh, so back to verse one. After these things I saw another angel coming down from heaven having great authority and the earth was illuminated with his glory and he cried mightily with a loud voice saying, Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen and has become a dwelling place of demons, a prison for every foul spirit, and a cage for every unclean and hated bird. For all the nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of, this is strong language, of her fornication. The kings of the earth have committed fornication with her, 
And the merchants of the earth have become rich through the abundance of her luxury. So let me just pause right there. So the nation of Babylon in the prophetic book of Revelation is figurative. It's symbolic. Now we know that there was a nation that existed in 5-600 BC known as Babylon because the Babylonians conquered Jerusalem and took them into 70 years of captivity. And so when we see that same that many believe, I believe do, that there's the same spirit behind that empire is upon the nations of the earth in the end days. But when we see the nation of Babylon is being destroyed, that is figurative for the world order, the religious system, the political system, and the economic system that represents the world order that serves the Antichrist in his purposes in the end days. That's why they say if you don't, the Bible says if they don't receive the mark of the beast, meaning if they don't subscribe to the world order, citizen of the nation of Babylon and the world order, the United Kingdoms under the Antichrist control, then they will not be able to buy or sell. It will affect commerce, it will affect the world economically, and there will be one world order that will allow everyone to buy, sell, trade, and exist that will be under the Antichrist's rule and authority. So when we see the nation of Babylon, that's what it is speaking to, is the religious, economic, and political uh, world order that is serving the Antichrist and his mission. So verse 4, and we see here that it's being brought down and it's being destroyed because at the day of the Lord when he returns, that's when the final destruction happens of all the unbelievers that are rallying together against him in the battle of Armageddon. So verse 4 It says, and I heard another voice from heaven saying, come out of her, my people, lest you share in sins and lest you receive of her plagues. For her sins have reached to heaven and God has remembered her iniquities. Render to her just as she rendered to you and repay her double according to her works in the cup, the cup which she has mixed, mixed double, mixed double for her. So judgment is coming upon the Antichrist and upon this nation of Babylon, the world order and the kingdoms that have united against God. But it speaks about this, the cup which she's been mixing is now full. So this is really interesting stuff. If you go back through the Bible, you can see many times where it actually speaks about a cup that is filling and gets full, okay? Now, there are points when there are, this cup is poured out and that cup being poured out is God's judgment and God's wrath. The cup that is being filled is being filled with sin or iniquities, okay? In the book of Genesis, when God was leading Abraham out and showing him the promised land that him and his descendants would inherit, talking about possessing it, there was something that he said in Genesis 15, I believe, which was kind of like a delay to what would come. He said, but the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete or not full, meaning we see things that happen in the world. People do evil things and bad things. And then we think, wow, they got away with that. I wonder why they're not being punished. I wonder why that's being allowed to happen. 
I'm not going to suggest to you that we will ever understand God's timing or his ways, okay? But I do see throughout Scripture that there are more instances than not where there is a delay that is happening before the judgment and the wrath is actually poured out. Meaning the cup is allowed to fill with sin and iniquity of a person or of a nation. And then when it is full and spills, then the wrath of God is brought forth. The Amorites in Genesis 15 where it says that he told Abraham the the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete or full. Later, Joshua goes into the promised land. In Joshua chapter 10, remember son stands still when he prayed that? They were fighting the Amorites and the Amorites were completely annihilated by Israel. In that battle, they were a wicked people. It seems to be that their iniquity cup had filled to the point of full and God brought Israel in and unleashed judgment and then they were annihilated. All five kings that were Amorite kings were beheaded by the people of Israel. So then that wrath was brought forth. Another example would be Sodom and Gomorrah. Remember, their their iniquity had reached to heaven. It had had reached a point where God was bringing judgment. And Abraham tried to petition with God. Hey, don't destroy the city. Would you destroy the city with the sinners and the righteous alike? It's a very interesting story where God and and Abraham kind of seems to like try to appeal to God. He says, if there's 50 righteous, will you not destroy it? Yeah, well, there's 45, if there's 40 righteous. And Abraham just keeps going down to the point where he says, if there's 10 righteous in the whole city, would you spare it? But there weren't even 10 righteous. There was Lot and his wife and his two daughters. And they were spared from the city. And one of them backslid on the way out. His wife, remember, she turned around, became a pillar of salt. She's still blowing around in the wind out there. Anyway, so that Sodom and, the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah had reached to the point where judgment had finally come. But let me give you one more example. Nineveh and Jonah. Jonah sent to Nineveh to tell them judgment has come the wrath of God is going to happen now Jonah it was interesting because Jonah was all excited about it he was all like they're going to get what they deserve so he goes and he tells them about you know the message of the destruction to come and I I say society like he's he's like yeah they're going to they need they deserve what they're going to get and do you know what Nineveh does Nineveh repents Nineveh repents and do you know what God did he spared them of that judgment So look, the cup of iniquity fills of sin, but when we repent, it's dumped out and it's empty. And and Jonah was disappointed with that. He's like, what? And they repented and God spared the judgment over Nineveh that he was getting ready to bring because their cup had filled, their sin was full, but they repented and the cup was dumped out before the wrath was dumped out. And so the Bible says for us as believers in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, it says, and he's, and he's speaking to believers in the church, not unbelievers, he says, if we say that we have no sin in ourselves, if we say that we have no sin, then we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we will confess our sins, meaning repent, then God is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. So as believers who walk in this world, we are forgiven by Jesus' blood and his grace once and for all of the condition of sin 
that allows us entrance into heaven. But make no mistake, we still walk in a fallen world in a a fleshly body that's bent towards desires and lusts of the flesh that war against the will of God in our lives. And if we partake of sins and iniquities of the world, then if you can picture, it's like that cup is filling. And then ultimately, the consequences of sin will come upon us, not in the form of the wrath of destroying us to hell if we've received Jesus, but in the form of wrath. The Bible says God chastises those whom he loves. So there is consequences that result. And if we continue to walk in sin willingly and don't repent of that, then it's like that cup is filling. But when we repent and God forgives us, it's like we want to keep that cup empty. Are you with me? And so this is what has happened is that there has been a delay through the time of all the destruction and the evil that's been happening on the earth through the Antichrist, it's been building, and finally, at the end of the tribulation and at Christ's return, it's it. The time for repentance is over, the cup is full, and now the wrath is poured out, and the final judgment has come. You with me so far? So this describes this event. Now, around this same time of these seven years, where we see that the, the return of the Lord, the day of the Lord happens. There is also another event that, ha- that takes place during this period of time uh, that I want to talk to you about today. And it's not a word that's actually in the Bible. All right, you need to know that. But let me just say this before you freak out because I know some people are like, oh, that's not a Bible word. Look, that's true. And, and we do have to be very aware of that stuff. But there are other words that are not in the Bible that we use to describe our theological views on things. For example, Trinity is not a word ever used in the Bible, but we use it to describe theological truth of Father, Son, Holy Spirit, three persons in one, one God, right? And so the word Trinity is never in the Bible. And there's there's other things like that. But this word is not in the Bible, but it does, it is a word that we use to describe a theological view about end times. And it's a word called rapture. Rapture. How many people have heard of that before? Okay. Now, where we really draw a lot of our teaching out of around this subject is in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We're going to go there in a minute. But in, this, in this, these verses, it speaks about a catching up or a uh, joining together in the air, being pulled up in the air, specifically for believers in Christ who are alive on the earth at the time when the Lord returns. That's where this is really relevant for those who are living when Christ comes back and says that they're caught up in the air. Now, that word in the Greek in the scriptures for caught up is a word harpezo, which means to seize by force, to snatch away quickly and suddenly. And then there is a later word that is used in Latin called rapturo, which means the same thing, which is where we get the English word rapture from. So just briefly, a little teaching for you. The scriptures were written in Hebrew, written in Greek. Right, Roman Empire persecutes the New Testament church, but then all of a sudden, a couple hundred years later, in like 300-something A.D., one Roman emperor named Constantine actually gets saved. 
and is converted to Christianity. And with a number of decades after that, all of a sudden, Christianity is the religion of the Roman Empire now. So Roman people spoke Latin, and that was their sophisticated language. So a lot of words, a lot of translations actually came along through Latin translations of what was written in Greek. There's actually the Latin Bible called the Vulgate. So anyway, the word rapturo, rapture in English, comes from the meaning of seize and to snatch away, which originates from a Greek word harpezo, which is what is used in 1 Thessalonians 4 to describe this event that I'm about ready to unpack for you. But I want to give you a demonstration. Is there anybody here uh, that has a large bill, large cash bill in their pocket right now? <laughs> or do you just not trust me? Okay. All right. Gary the man. All right. We're going to talk about offering. No, I'm just kidding. Come up here. I'm just kidding. Can you come up here with your large bill? I want to do a demonstration. All right. So... Stand right here, kind of facing me so break it. So take this large bill. Oh, that's a good one. Yep. Open your hand. Just kind of hold it like that. And so, you know, we're just kind of, things are happening. We're just kind of talking. Life's going to... You didn't even see that, did you? So it was there in his hand, and all of a sudden, it was just seized and snatched in a moment. And it was there one minute, it was gone the next. Just like that. That's... A good way that I can, let's do that one more time. Okay. Oh, I dropped. <laughs> All right. Thank you, Gary. Thank you. So when it speaks about this event where people are caught up in the air, it's literally to be snatched out, to be just there one minute, gone the next, just like pew, taken. And then we're, the people who are a part of that catching up in the air, who are alive on the earth, at some point in this seven-year period of tribulation, when Christ is returning, join with Christ in the air and all of those who have already died and went on to be with the Lord, Old Testament saints and New Testament believers in Christ alike. Does that make sense? So it's basically the outcome of those who are on the earth. Now, there are several views on this to which there is much debate and I'm just going to give you my take on this, okay? But there are several views as to when the rapture happens, meaning the beginning of the seven-year tribulation, which is called pre-tribulation theory, the middle of the tribulation, which is, this is deep, mid-tribulation theory, <laughs> all right? I think you can get the obvious implications. Pre-tribulation, we're People are spared from all of the destruction and turmoil. Mid-tribulation, exposed to some of it, but the worst is in the second half of the seven years. We know that. And then the last one is the post-tribulation theory, which means at the end of the seven years, which those who are still alive when Christ returns, that's when they're just caught up in the air and join with Christ in the air. I will say, for me, I have studied this I don't even know how many hours I've studied this stuff over the last number of years. I don't think it is completely clear in any one of these theories one way or the other. I, I, I can see very good reasons for positions on pre, mid, and post. And, but this is, what I, this is what's unfortunate, is that some people in the church and in the body of Christ will allow their difference about theory their, de their debate about that difference to divide them from being able to work together to build the kingdom of God. And to me, that is tragic. 
It's like majoring in a minor thing. If it happens in the beginning or the mid or the end, so be it. The Bible speaks very clearly that we don't know the hour or the time and that we are to live ready and live prepared. If we go in the beginning and we join Christ in the air before it happens, or if we go at the end and we've endured, ultimately it's the same outcome, which is to be joined with Christ in the air for all of the eternal age after that. And that is the glorious outcome which awaits all of us, whether it's pre, mid, or post-tribulation theory. And that is what I want you to take with you, okay? Um, now, so let's go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and let's read these verses that describe this event. All right, verse 13. He says, and this is Paul. Well, you know Paul wrote, what, 75% of the New Testament, so much of the writings are, is, is Paul. Um, it says, but I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. So he's trying to encourage them. Look, for the people that you love and that you know who have died, I don't want you to be concerned or worried or sorrowful about their condition He's reminding them that there's no reason for that because they're with the Lord now. And he goes on to talk about for those who remain. Verse 14, for if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. So he's gonna bring back all who have already died when he re before he returns, whenever he does return. Verse 15, for this we say to you by the word of the Lord that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep for the Lord himself will descend with heaven, from heaven with a shout with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up Harpezo, seized and snatched and taken away suddenly, shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Hallelujah. That's the whole thing you need to get right there. Therefore, therefore, comfort one another with these words. Evidently, they were in need of being comforted around this particular discussion. And he's wanting to remind them, look, those who are already gone, they're going to be with Christ when he returns. They're going to proceed. And then those who are alive on the earth, if they're here when that happens, guess what? We're caught up in the air and we join with him and we're all together in the, what the Bible speaks of in many places as a gathering, a coming together of all the saints when Christ comes and com returns and comes back. And so I want to give you a few more of these verses to kind of build off of this. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, just, just right after the one I just read, it says, but concerning time, verse 1, concerning times and seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you, for you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. Do you get that? Like, you're going to see several times now as we discuss this moment of gathering how he is also sort of packaging this language with we don't know the time, we don't know the hour, we don't know the day. It's okay. Encourage one another. Comfort one another that we all go. We all are there when it happens. Verse 9, for God did not appoint us to wrath but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ 
And some people say, well, he's not, we're not a part of the wrath, so we're gone before it happens. Well, the, there is the fullness of wrath at the very end that gets poured out too. So you could see both sides of that. That's what it's really talking about. But anyway, he said, not appointed us to salvation, or uh, to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we are awake or whether we sleep, we should live together with him. Therefore, comfort each other and edify one another just as you are also doing. You're starting to get the kind of overarching theme of all of this. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 10, it says, In the dispensation of the fullness of the times, he, God, might gather together, the gathering together, in one, all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth. If we know Jesus, we love Jesus, he's in our heart, whether we're gone or whether we're here, we're all gonna get joined together in this event whenever it happens at some particular point of the seven years. I will say this, in my opinion, from all the study that I've done, in most evangelical churches, the, the, the denominations uh, would subscribe to the fact that there is a rapture that there is an event that happens of the catching away. Again, we just use the word rapture to describe it. But that there is an event that takes place just like what I'm teaching you right now. And then listen to this. This is crazy. In Matthew chapter 24, for me, this really kind of drives it home, this, this whole uh, event happening. Matthew chapter 24, first I read to you in verses 29 through 31. Because he's speaking about the end. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. So it says the stars will fall from heaven and powers of heaven will be shaken. So there are cosmic disruptions that are happening during this escalation of cataclysmic events. Probably asteroids, comets, all, all kinds of stuff like that's probably happening. Verse 30, then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven and all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven in power and great glory. So the unbelievers who have rebelled, who have been blinded by the Antichrist, will see Jesus for who he is when it's too late. And they will mourn because they have chosen a different path. Verse 31, and he will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet. And they will gather together his elect from the four ends, from one end of heaven to the other. Once again, gathering together. Now, few verses later, Jesus issues forth a parable here. Verse 36. But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. So not even the angels know when this day or hour is supposed to happen. So if an angel just happens to come and tell you, here's when it's going to take place, just know, he doesn't know either, okay? He's probably not a real angel, even the angels don't know. Verse 37, but as the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating, drinking, marrying, and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and did not know until the flood came and took them all away. Also, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. So the flood was a cleansing over the earth, right? And it was God's judgment on sin at that time. 
the cup had grown full. And Noah and his family were spared. But as he was building the ark, all the people who are, they're just going about their business, just living in sin, doing their thing, happy and gluttonous in all the ways. And then all of a sudden, here comes the flood. And guess what? washes them away in a moment. That's it. It's like, wow, that just happened all of a sudden. But really, it had been building for some time. And that's kind of what he's comparing this event at the end to. Now listen to this. Verse 40. And then two men will be in a field. One will be taken, caught up, and the other left. Two women will be grinding at the mill one will be taken and the other will be left. All of a sudden, people out there, all people are gone and people are still here. That's exactly what this is describing, how this happens. Verse 42, watch therefore, for you do not know, you guys know the rest of this, right? What hour your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed the house to be broken into. Therefore, you also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Wow. One's there, and then all of a sudden one's gone. I'm just giving you what I have here. But I think it's pretty clear that they're caught, those who are on the earth are caught up at some point and then those who remain will now go through the tribulation. Here's what's beautiful about that. If they go through the tribulation, there will be an opportunity to repent and to receive Christ. The Bible speaks about how God brings forth two witnesses on the earth during the time of the tribulation. And that these two witnesses come and they proclaim the message of the gospel of Christ and of the impending judgment to come. And even though many will not receive that because they are caught up in the fornication, meaning they've tied themselves to the Antichrist, right? Because we know fleshly, you can't tie yourself more intimately to another person than that in flesh. So they've tied themselves spiritually to the Antichrist. So they will not hear the witnesses, but there will be ones who will hear. And we see from many of these verses in Revelation that there is a massive revival that ensues and many start to come to the saving knowledge of Christ. And much of that happens in the nation of Israel with the Jewish people. And God's remnant of his people are restored to his kingdom. But many of those who accept Christ during the tribulation end up being martyred for their faith. But praise God, their spirits go to join Christ with the rest of us in the air who are already there when that happens. Make sense? So we see that there's this return and and then this coming together. Now in John chapter 14, Jesus himself is actually speaking about this particular event and he describes it in a really profound way as a husband and a wife. So let me go to chapter 14, verse one. He says, let your heart not be troubled. If you believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again 
and receive you to myself. You see that? Return and receive you, gather you to me. That where I am, there you may be also. Now, in Jewish culture, when a bride and her groom, which we know the Bible often refers to the church and our relationship with Christ as we are the bride, the church, and he is our bridegroom. So in Jewish culture, when there was a wedding, when the groom and the bride were betrothed or engaged, there would often be a time, maybe a year, where the groom would go to his father's house, his father's estate, and he would prepare the living quarters and the arrangements for his bride that he would soon wed. Think on this figuratively now, okay? So when the groom was ready, he would return for his bride. It's very interesting that part of the celebration of that return is that they would blow trumpets, which we see the blowing of trumpets by angels in the book of Revelation as this time ensues. And so the bridegroom would return for the bride and would receive her to himself and there would be a ceremony, a celebration and the wedding would often last for like a full week or seven days. Now if you remember in John chapter two, the first miracle that Jesus did was he turned water into wine. You know where that was. It was at a wedding, yes. And the reason why Jesus' mom was so worked up is probably because the wedding was family and they were dishonored when they ran out of wine, but that, that meant the celebration might have been cut short. How many of you like to go to a seven-day wedding? That'd be kind of cool, huh? Anyway. So <laughs> the, the, the wedding celebration often lasted for seven days, a full week, and then the bride and the groom would consummate their marriage. I'll just let you think on that one, okay? And, and then they would be forever together from then on out, that would fulfill their marriage, and they would enter into their covenant relationship together after that. Now, Jesus is saying, I go, I'm gonna come again, and I'm going to receive you to myself. He is our bridegroom, where does he go? He goes to the Father's house to prepare a place for us where there are many mansions. He comes back at whatever time that is and receives us, the church, his bride, to himself and I think this is interesting, the pre-tribulation rapture theory on being at the beginning, that when Jesus receives us to himself, if there is a marriage celebration that's going on that often lasted in culture for seven days, it's just interesting that the tribulation lasts for seven years and is culminated at the end with the day of the Lord when the destruction of all of the rebellious nations happens. So it is a theory, a good one, that we are received in the beginning. There is the beginning of the marriage celebration of ceremonies that is happening in heaven. And then at the end of the seven-year period, the marriage is fully consummated. And then we enter into the eternal age, which requires the destruction of all of the ungodly on the earth in order for that to happen. Now, Revelation 19 speaks of this. I'm not getting that only from John 14. This is why it's important to read your whole Bible, right? Revelation 19, verse six, part of John's vision. 
before the day of the Lord happens. This is the vision he's having because then later we see the Christ return on the white horse. Right before that happens, he sees this. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude and the sound of many waters as the sound of mighty thunderings saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife has made herself ready. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright. For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. And then he said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true sayings of God. There is a marriage supper. There is a feast. There is some sort of ceremony that's happening. Whether it's the full seven years or not, I certainly can't be positive. But there is good reason to see that that could be the case. The main point is, is that there is this celebration, this marriage, this feast, this consummation that's happening between the bridegroom and the bride, us, the church, that will inaugurate the beginning of the rest of the age after that. And what we also see is that there is this fine linen on those who are a part of the, of the bride. Right, and it says they were arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright. Later, a few verses, when it talks about the armies of God who are following on their own horses behind Christ on his white horse when the heavens rip open, we know the great earthquake happens and all that takes place, that those armies of God are arrayed in fine white linen, radiant and bright. So, the bride, us, the church, that are caught up in the celebration for a part of that, they're arrayed in fine linen, are shining and bright in the ceremony. And then a few verses later, we see all of those coming on their own horses, the saints and us and the church, that are also arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright. Isn't that interesting? Isn't that interesting? I would say tied has nothing on the white and bright, shining nature of the clothes that we will be wearing. Hallelujah. Let us rejoice and be glad. The marriage of the Lamb has come and his wife has made herself ready. And then the last thing I want to say is where we'll end today. Regarding um, this white linen and this shining is in Daniel chapter 12. In Daniel chapter 12. He's speaking about the end time prophecy. This is amazing that Daniel, what, five, four, five hundred, five hundred, six hundred BC, is prophesying, writing this and about the end times, and then John, however many years later, writes about it, and we're gonna see these things unfold. But listen to this. Verse one, at that time, Michael, which is an archangel, shall stand up, the great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people, and there shall be a time of trouble, such as never was since there was a nation, even to that time. And at that time, your people shall be delivered, everyone who is found written in the book. The Bible speaks about the book of life. 
several places. When we receive Christ as our Lord and Savior, Holy Spirit comes to live on the inside of us. We, our names are written in the Lamb's book of life. There will be books that will be opened at the very end and those whose names are in the book of life will be welcomed into that glorious ceremony and that glorious age in heaven. Those who are not written in that book will experience the different outcome. And listen to this. It says in verse two, and many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Now, I do believe that there's a foreshadow here about something I'm going to teach next week, which is how at this point, at the end of the day of the Lord and the gathering together, we receive new bodies, spiritual bodies. Paul teaches about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. If you want to read ahead and go there before next week, it might be interesting for you, but it's fascinating stuff that our spirits actually receive a heavenly body that is set for eternity, okay? But he's speaking a little bit about that here, I believe. And then in verse three, he says, those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the firmament and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forevermore. Hallelujah. You see, there's something about when we are in heaven, Jesus himself spoke about, I will reward you openly. He spoke about a prophet's reward, a disciple's reward. There were things that are described all through the New Testament about rewards that are coming in heaven. We see other places that it talks about crowns that we will receive. And then we know that the saints are arrayed in fine and white linen that shines bright. And Daniel himself prophesied that those who turn many to righteousness and those who are wise will shine like bright stars forevermore. So it seems to be that when we go to be with Jesus in heaven, there are rewards that are coming that are based upon our obedience and our faithfulness to him in this life here. And there are varying degrees, evidently, of shining and of brightness. Now, what that does not mean, it cannot mean, is that there is any kind of caste system in heaven. It is not possible based on all of the teachings of the Bible. We are unified and we are one in heaven worshiping the Lord. But for some reason, it speaks about this in many places, crowns, rewards, and brightness of shining in varying degrees. So we understand that how we live this life and our obedience and faithfulness to the call of God upon us will be of great significance in the eternal age. That's the best way I can summarize and say that. All I can finish within that is that it compels me to live the life that God is calling me to live today. I don't want to tarry. I don't want to be passive. I don't want to be apathetic in a world that's dying. I want to live with everything I have, what God is calling me to, that my life and this little speck of what it is can impact eternity and people who are lost and dying in the era of time that God's called me to live in. And I trust and know that that glorious future awaits me where he'll welcome me home and the life I lived will be rewarded by my Father in heaven who is a giver of good gifts always. Amen. 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 Would you stand to your feet with me, please?